Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host Shahzad Ghani and welcome to another episode of Atmospheric Tales. Our guest today is a lecturer of social and environmental management at the University of West Indies at Cave Hill Barbados. She has over 30 years professional experience in participatory research, environmental management, social and gender impact assessment, heritage tourism management, meeting facilitation and training. She has also published several articles in the areas of environmental management, climate change, social planning and sustainable development. Her research is focused on participatory approaches to social and gender impact assessment, investigations of social and gender resilience in climate change and disaster risk management, and applications of climate change management in public sector and civil society groups. I'm excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Janice Cumberbatch. Our interview today is Shefali Matthews, who is a PhD student in environmental health and engineering at Johns Hopkins University. Her research focuses on using environmental epidemiological methods to promote health equity and environmental justice in the era of a changing climate. Welcome to the show, Janice and Shefali. Thank you so much for the introduction, Shazad. And welcome to the show, Janice. Thank you very much for having me. I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to discuss your perspectives on social and environmental management, which really brings together multiple disciplines to solve critical issues in people's daily lives. In particular, I'm excited to learn about your expertise in the blue economy and participatory processes, as well as heritage tourism management and coastal zone management in Barbados and in the Caribbean region. Barbados, like other Caribbean countries, is particularly vulnerable to the effects of climate change, such as sea level rise, ocean acidification, and more frequent and intense natural disasters, such as hurricanes, to name a few. Could you elaborate on how these effects can impact the lives of the inhabitants and the economic activities of the country? Certainly, no problem at all. And thanks very much for giving me the opportunity to discuss these issues. So one of the one of the features that's really critical to dealing with the fact that we're so vulnerable to climate change is that we must have effective early warning systems. And that seems straightforward, like just have an early warning system. But the truth of the matter is that it has to be diverse. I just had a student who did research on this. You've got a heterogeneous population. You've got people who are of different ages, genders, socioeconomic levels, different capacities. So when you want to put an early warning system in place, you have to consider what are the diverse ways you have to use to get people informed. Apps are really wonderful, and that might work with the modern, you know, are, are you called Gen Z? population, but the older folk are still listening to the radio. So we actually have to be very diverse in designing our early warning systems. Then we have to think about things such as insurance, because trying to address vulnerability means that you have to put something in place for people who might not be able to prepare very well and they need to recover. And some of the most vulnerable populations don't have what they need to recover. And insurance is a primary example of that. There's still sectors such as the fishing sector where people are unable to insure their boats and their gear. In that regard, we're really happy to have the um, CRIF because what the CRIF does, and by CRIF I'm talking about the um, Caribbean Catastrophe Risk Insurance Facility, they've made 
making it possible for, first of all, governments to have premiums that allow them to apply for relief in the aftermath of something like a hurricane. So that time frame that governments took to recover from a bad event, and you know, we have bad events regularly in terms of, of hurricanes in the Caribbean. We are one of the most um, disaster-prone regions in that regard. Governments can now, based on the premium they have with the CRIF, they can now apply for and get a cash injection to start the process of cleanup and recovery getting utilities back in place and the like. But more importantly, what CRIF has also done is put some other products in place. The one that I particularly like is the one that we call the COAST, the Caribbean Ocean and Aquaculture Sustainable Facility. And that one targets the very vulnerable, especially the fishing communities, to help them in the aftermath, again, of an event to recover. So we have to think about products like the CRIFT and its other elements such as cost and how we can expand on those. We need to understand how we can get the mainstream financial institutions, the mainstream insurance institutions to come on board so that these vulnerable communities like fishing communities can better be prepared to respond in the event of, of a hurricane or a volcano or what have you not. So yeah, we're very vulnerable, but we have had some opportunities through, as I said, the Caribbean Catastrophic um, Risk Insurance Facility and its other products to help governments and vulnerable communities respond better. And, you know, we are working on getting things like early warning systems set up properly so that it doesn't just target a few, it gets to everybody understanding the diversity within our populations. If we don't do things like that, then, you know, we take really long to recover. Governments are then plagued with trying to find ways to support the most vulnerable. Barbados experienced Hurricane Elsa. I think it was back in 2019, perhaps. I may have that year wrong. I'll have to check. But it was a few years ago. And the government is still housing some people, paying rent for people who lost their homes during Hurricane Elsa. Because at the end of the day, what happened was that their houses were lost and the the government had to find somewhere to put them up. It was actually 2021, I just checked. So we're starting 2023 and the government is still carrying the burden of paying for housing for people who lost their homes, who didn't have insurance during that period and helping them put houses back in place so they can move out of rental facilities and get back into their own homes. These are just some of the realities of being a small and a developing state with limited resources and vulnerable communities. Great. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, so you did share some of the, the challenges and adverse impacts of climate change and these realities uh, in this region, but you also did share some solutions such as the early warning systems. So kind of building off of these climate adaptation strategies, uh, what do effective investments in coastal infrastructure look like to impact resilience and to also potentially uh, yield ecosystem benefits? And what kinds of benefits are needed to ensure equitable results for tourists and residents? Okay, so... Barbados has been very fortunate because we have taken coastal management 
very seriously going as far back as 1983, where we had a project to assess what we needed to protect our coastlines. And by 1996, we'd established our Coastal Zone Management Unit. The Coastal Zone Management Unit in Barbados is heralded as a significant successful project, successful unit. And the reason why is because they have been able to get it right. It is not just a case of investing in the hard structures. It's not just a case of investing in revetments and groins and boardwalks. It's a lot more than that. What we were able to do through the Coastal Zone Management Unit, which we call the CZMU, is we started by the baseline studies. We, we studied it. We studied our coastal and oceanographic processes to understand how the Barbados coastline works. So you had to invest first of all, in understanding your coastline, because you had, first of all, to appreciate the fact that your coastline was critical. You had to have a vision of the importance and understanding of your coastline in terms of protecting, supporting your economy, supporting livelihoods and protecting your country as a whole. So we studied it. We then did comprehensive risk evaluations of our coastline. We did multi-hazard evaluations in terms of wind and earthquakes and storm surge and erosion and the we did vulnerability assessments, including a social vulnerability assessment. We did risk assessments. We moved from there and we've established now what we call the National Coastal Risk Information and Planning Platform, because we have to have a database that allows us to put all that information in there, update it regularly to be sure that we can constantly be able to respond effectively. It's after you've put all of that in place, and believe me, that was done through significant loans from the Inter-American Development Bank. But again, the competence of the Coastal Zone Management Unit, because they were well-established, they had a plan, they had an act, their staff were competently trained, their capacity was built, where they were able to carry out these programs through these loans successfully. Then you start on the infrastructure because you can't just go and drop infrastructure in the ocean. You can exacerbate a situation. So when you've understood the situation, then you start on the coastal infrastructure. And we've done different projects. We've done, um, we've, we've, we've constructed different types of coastal defenses. We've done shoreline enhancement in terms of walkways and, and headlands and breakwaters, yeah, in an effort to reduce flood. We, we had coastal areas that were more susceptible to flood than other areas. We had coastal areas that were more susceptible to erosion than other areas. By doing the study, we understood this and then we could design the correct offshore or onshore structures that would work, whether it was a revetment or boardwalk or otherwise. We also then invested in ecosystem-based adaptation. We did a pilot project looking at reef generation and construction. So understand that we, we didn't just say, okay, we, we need to protect the study, we're going to put up a seawall. We didn't take that approach. No, the approach we took was let's understand our coastline. Let's put together a database. Let's understand the, the climate risk and then let's design, let's do modeling. And I can tell you that any structure that the Coastal Zone Management Unit puts in place undergoes both mathematical as well as physical modeling. So they take it very seriously. And this comes at a significant cost. We have been very fortunate that the Inter-American Development Bank has invested heavily in 
helping us to to protect our coastline in in this way. Yeah, that that is in terms of effective investment. You don't start with the hard structures. You start with understanding your coastline. You start by understanding your risk and then you design and implement. And sometimes you have to adjust. There have been instances where things may have to be adjusted. But yeah, that was the approach that the Coastal Zone Management Unit took. And it has has worked for us so far. That's great to hear that the Coastal Zone Management has really been tailored to the context of the local uh, issues in Barbados. So in addition to the impacts of climate change that we've discussed, there are other environmental issues such as plastic pollution, poor water, and waste management that threaten Caribbean countries' economics and biodiversity. For example, studies in Barbados show that visitors value the quality of coastal and marine resources, such as wide beaches, seawater quality, and thriving coral reefs. Therefore, tourism would be heavily affected by the loss of those assets. Can you tell our listeners what the blue economy is and how it can integrate solutions that can guide Caribbean countries towards real sustainable development, especially because the blue economy has become important in Barbados to the point where the Ministry of Marine Affairs has incorporated blue economy on its name and agenda. So if you can comment on how effective blue economy efforts and policies are, including the main challenges. Sure, no problem. I smiled when you asked this question because we have a saying in Barbados, and I'm sure you have similar sayings in the U.S. and other parts of the world, cold soup warmed over, meaning all concept, new name. The thing about the ocean is that we're island people. Barbados is an island. The ocean has always been critical to our economy, our livelihoods, and the lives of Caribbean people. Now, new branding is cool. I mean, it brings new, renewed focus on the importance of an issue or of a resource in this case. And sometimes it helps to mobilize resources. And that's how I like to see the blue economy, because blue economy is fundamentally talking about the use of ocean resources for economic growth, to improve livelihoods and jobs. Well, when you live on an island, you've constantly been using the ocean for those purposes. You use it to feed yourselves. You use it because of of fish. You use it in your tourism product. People come and it's our beaches that attract them. It's critical to transportation, transportation routes. So when when everybody started talking about blue economy, green economy, pink economy, I'm like, okay, branding, nice. Let's let's rebrand it. Let's bring a, you know, brush it off, make it make it fresh. But the point is, let's perhaps take a different look at it and let's understand how we can use it better. That's how I see the blue economy. I think the epitome of how Barbados is perhaps demonstrating that it's taking blue economy seriously is that we're finally getting our marine spatial plan in place. We've been playing with this for a long time now. We've had several efforts at establishing marine spatial plans, marine protected areas, whatever. But very recently, and again, the Coastal Zone Management Unit is central to this, Barbados received the grant from the Nature Conservancy back in July 2022, and it helped to establish something called the Barbados Environmental Sustainability Fund. And then in September of that same year, the government of Barbados entered into a debt conversion transaction with the IADB again, and with TNC, the Nature Conservancy, as major partners. A critical part of the funding coming out of that debt conversion is financing of a unit to establish our marine spatial plan. And in trying to establish our marine spatial plan, we're finally saying, look, 
The ocean is critical to us. We have to protect it into the future. How are we going to do this? Let's bring all of the players in place. So let's have the difficult conversation. We would not be having this series of podcasts around easy topics. Nobody does that. We have series like these around difficult questions. When you try to make your blue economy work for you, you have to consider the gains. Why do I say you have to consider the gains? You have to consider the gains because immediately everybody thinks about what they're going to lose. Everybody starts saying, oh, well, there'll be no fish zones. Oh, we won't be able to pursue oil and gas in the way that we might have wanted to pursue that particular industrial effort. So people immediately go to the, oh my goodness, we're going to lose things. What we have to be clever and strategic in doing around the marine spatial plan, around trying to make your blue economy thrive, is look at what are the gains and ensure that people buy into and understand the gains. Let me give you an example. Barbados has been engaged in solar energy since 1970. We established solar heaters on our roofs since 1970. You can do the mathematics. But we didn't go beyond that. We were very happy to have warm water to shower in in the morning, but we missed the opportunity to take the option of this beautiful sunshine that we have and use it, you know, for more renewable energy source options. So now in 2023, we're trying to move towards having fully, you know, renewable energy economy by 2030 or thereafter. But we had sort of heaters since 1970. Gas, however, gas products were nice and cheap. So we weren't worried about putting gas in our cars. Now they're phenomenally expensive again. We're thinking about moving in this direction. Climate change is more of a threat. There's more of an impetus to move in that direction. The issue though was back then we did not see beyond, well, we just have some warm water, but you know, we don't have to pursue this any further because we can afford gas. We didn't think about the broader gains to us as a society if we had pushed that envelope further. So if I come back now to blue economy and marine spatial plans, if we want to be successful, if we are really going to push the gains that we can gain from our ocean resources and use them sustainably, we can't just look at the short-term benefits as we did with solar heating in 1970 and beyond, we have to say, what are the long-term benefits of pushing the envelope with our blue economy, making a decision to establish a marine spatial plan that undoubtedly will have some stakeholders losing or changing the way in which, a better way of putting it, I should say, change the way in which they operate, but ultimately they'd be a gain down the road. If there's short-term gains that you can demonstrate from now, that's wonderful as well. But getting everybody to buy into the gains is actually the difficult part of blue economy and marine spatial planning policies and the like, because people tend to see the the short-term losses. So the, the trick is, the struggle is, how do we get everybody to buy into the blue economy gains in terms of the long-term? It also has implications for coastal developments, not just fishers, not just oil and gas, but as a tourism destination, everybody who wants to build A tourism facility wants to put it on the coastline. We already know that that is a problem. We already see the risk of coastal developments. 
So the question is, are we really, really ready to push the envelope on blue economy and taking the difficult decisions now by getting people to buy into and support the long-term gains? Thank you so much for sharing your perspective. I definitely agree that this will require a paradigm shift from short-term thinking to long-term thinking, especially with the current issues that we're facing in terms of sea level rise and other pertinent environmental challenges, along with what we've mentioned before about social vulnerability. Tourism is also an important economic activity in Barbados that besides the beneficial outputs, it also brings harmful human practices that are destroying coastal marine environment through overfishing, marine pollution, ecological imbalance, and more. Can you describe the main challenges for the sustainability of tourism in the face of climate change, along with all other relevant socioeconomic barriers such as green taxes and operating costs, especially in small island developing states of the Caribbean region? I'm happy to do so. I, I'd like to answer that question, if, if I may be permitted, by giving a quote from a book that was written by Polly Petulo back in 2005. And to my mind, the best part of that book was the preface written by Michael Manley, which, of course, uh, was a former prime minister back in Jamaica, you know, in that era. And introducing her book, Michael Manley had this to say, listen very, very carefully to this, because tourism is a balancing act. And this statement gets it right. Michael Manley said, the tourism industry is here to stay. But the question which we dare not ignore is whether we, the Caribbean people, are going to have the wit and the will to make it the servant of our needs. If we do not, it will become our master, the dispensing pleasure on a curve of diminishing returns while it exacerbates social divisions and widens that legacy of colonialism, the gap between the small, comfortable minorities and large majorities barely surviving at the social margin. He said that it could be an engine of short-term cash enhancement and long-term disaster, or it could be that thing that supported and benefits our economies. I like that quote. I really, really love the introduction that he gave to that book, because that is what tourism is in the Caribbean. That's what tourism is in Barbados. A balancing act. We need tourism. I, I, I teach in, in an environmental department, Center for Resource Management and Environmental Student Studies. My students all come and they're all excited to support the, the environment and save the environment, save turtles, save coral reefs. And, and, it, and it's laudable. It's wonderful. Good goals. And then they all say, oh, tourism is the enemy. And I look at them and I said, but you're here because of tourism. If we take tourism out of the equation, how are we going to feed ourselves in some of our islands? Not only are we very disaster prone in the Caribbean in terms of hurricanes and volcanoes, but we are the most tourism dependent region in the world. So let's take tourism over the economy. How are we going to eat? We can't eat. So that's our real time challenge. Tourism does have negative elements, but we have to control it. And that's what we have been trying to do for decades in the Caribbean and in Barbados. It means, again, the point I made about convincing people about the, the, the gains for everybody. We have to have hotels, we have to have attractions, we have to have airlift. But what do we do about those to make them 
sustainable? How do we encourage and enhance sustainability in all aspects of the very diverse um, tourism industry? Because tourism is accommodation, it's transportation, it is food and beverage. It is, you know, it's it's everything. There's nothing that tourism does not touch. And I challenge you to tell me something that tourism does not touch in an island context. So what do we actually do? Well, we actually need to, to perhaps reach into elements such as things like the Green Climate Fund, because you have funds out there that can help regions, that can help islands like Barbados, better manage how they are able to organize themselves, organize their economies, pay their people. And let me explain what I mean about that. If you are a prime minister and you have to meet your weekly or monthly wage bill, you have to do it. You have to have money. And most of the time that money is coming from tourism. So when somebody comes into your country and they offer to develop a resort in last standing mangrove, you have hard decision to make. Everybody talks about corrupt politicians. I'm not talking about corrupt politicians. I, I'm not wasting my time with that. I'm going to talk about the, the politicians who mean well and have a really hard time because literally they have to figure out how on earth do I protect this wetland but pay these wages on a regular basis because this particular resort will bring me more taxes and all the rest of it. Now, this is where the other products come in, right? This is where things like the Green Climate Funds and the Conservation Funds, such as the one that we've established to set up the Marine Spatial Plan, comes in. But we have to understand how to use those things. A very, a very important statistic that I learned recently, you know that we have the Green Climate Fund, okay, and there were like, 312 billion US dollars in climate finance flows to non-OECD countries in 2018, but only 31 billion went to Latin America and Caribbean. And if that figure was further disaggregated, a very small amount would have come to the Caribbean. And the reason why is because we have not yet sufficiently understood how to reach out, access, and grab those funds to help us support the conservation and climate elements that we need to do so that perhaps we're not that reliant then on the tourism dollars so we can negotiate better with the tourism developers and say, yeah, we want your money, but this is how we want your money. And we can say that from a position of strength. Yes, tourism is important to our country, but you're going to do tourism in a way that it benefits our people, that they're going to get the right jobs because they're trained for those jobs. Don't bring outsiders in. Let us hire, hire our nationals from manager right through the chain of employment opportunities in your property, in your operation. Put your facility where we have earmarked because we have a national development plan that tells us where tourism development is going to take place. And it's not where you want to put it, it's here because we've done the studies and this is the best place for us. But we have to leverage everything that is available to us so that we can stand up with a position of strength and say that. If you're not always chasing after a dollar bill from a developer whose main interest is profit and not necessarily the sustainability of your country, if you're always chasing that dollar bill, you'll never get to sustainability. But if you go after the products out there, like the Green Climate Fund and all the rest of it, and you 
build up your resilience as an, a small island developing state. If you understand those mechanisms and they're complicated, but we have facilities like the Caribbean Climate Change Center in Belize and the Caribbean Development Bank who are trying to put on courses to help their member countries within the CARICOM, Caribbean community, which is the, the, the grouping of Caribbean countries. We have those entities trying to build capacity in Caribbean countries, in Caribbean governments, to understand how to access those funds, to strengthen their resilience, to build their adaptive efforts. And then from that position of strength, you're able to say, yeah, we still want tourism, but we're defining the context in which we want that tourism. So it's all connected. You can't divorce investor funding in terms of the money that you're going to get from a private sector investor to build a resort from the funding that you're trying to get from something like the Green Climate Fund. You have to leverage the two of them for a position of strength to build your resilience as a small island developing state. Wonderful. I love that you shared the relevant quote and example because it really shows the practicality of tourism in both economic and political activities. I'd like to shift gears a little bit and uh, learn more about the participatory processes that you're involved in, particularly social and gender impact assessments. Uh, what particular considerations go into these social and gender impact assessments? And in general, how do you characterize social vulnerability? And I'd also be interested in learning if there are certain vulnerable populations that have been overlooked. Okay, so yeah, social and gender impact assessment is something that I've been doing for, for about three decades now. My, my role in the overall environmental impact assessment is to ensure that the voice of the potentially affected populations are heard. Okay, so you understand that environmental impact assessment is a tool. It's a decision-making tool. It's the way of looking at a potential development, be it a golf club, a, tour, a, a coastal tourism resort, a new factory, a new road, um, a new solar farm. There are so many different things that we're considering at the same time in a small country like Barbados. We have to consider how this proposed development, which is supposed to do all these wonderful things that bring jobs and enhance our economy and move us towards sustainability. Environmental impact assessment is a tool that helps us to understand how it will interface with the biophysical and social environment so that we're certain that by giving approval for this project to take place, we're getting the benefits and we're minimizing the negatives. That's what EIA is all about. I come into the picture and give a voice to the potentially project affected populations. So if this is a road, a road is a wonderful thing, but, or any form of construction, the ultimate end goal is a good thing, but the construction period is a nuisance. There's dust, there's noise, there's traffic diversions, impacts on people's lives. Elderly people who are at home because they're retired, they get impacted most because they're getting noise all of the time. My job in doing social and gender assessments is to understand those impacts and make recommendations on how you can reduce those. Because you're going to build a road more likely than not. You need the road, but you've got to construct it. There are going to be negative impacts. How can I identify who is likely to be most affected by those negative impacts in the short term? So I have to characterize the impact, it is going to be dust, it's going to be noise, it's going to last for X amount of period of time, it's going to be intermittent, it's going to be at this time of the day or that time of the day. These are the populations that are most likely to be affected by it and how they're going to be affected by it. 
here are recommended mitigation measures to reduce the impacts on them for the public good because the road or the boardwalk or whatever we're trying to build is the public good. Now understand that project affected people can be all types because I finished a project recently where we were looking at additional coastal infrastructure for the protection of the island. But we have people who own properties on the coastline. They may be wealthier than some of the rest of us who can't afford coastal properties, but there are project affected people. They're very concerned about the short-term impacts that I just described in terms of the construction, but they're also then concerned about the long-term impacts in terms of security. If more people can access the coastline now because we've made it more accessible by a boardwalk, are they likely to have more security concerns? Because of course, we also have to factor any turtles. We can't put bright floodlights on that boardwalk. So my job then is to interface with these stakeholders at all scales and try to understand their issues and make recommendations on how you relieve the stress on them. Now you use the word vulnerable. And the thing about social vulnerability is that, you know, it, it's talking about how countries or, or people, communities respond to or recover from something. And some elements make us more vulnerable than other elements. So for example, obviously if we have if if we have a lower socioeconomic status, if we are an ethnic minority, if we're the elderly, if we're impoverished, we are more likely to have a harder time recovering from people who are the opposite of that and they have wealth and they have insurance and they have property. If somebody with insurance has a damaged property, they'll pull the pin on their insurance policy and get the money to do the repairs. If somebody doesn't have an insurance policy, the government has to come to their assistance. So that's that's what we're talking about when we, when we mean social vulnerability. In Barbados, we have the elderly to consider. They're particularly vulnerable. They, they may or may not have a support system in that maybe their family lives abroad. They no longer live in Barbados. People with disabilities are especially vulnerable because they now have either a physical or a mental incapacity that prevents them from doing what fully able people can do. So they have this additional challenge in trying to face the hazard or the problem. The youth are particularly vulnerable usually because the unemployment rate among young people is usually higher than with other demographic groups. So they have a hard time bouncing back. And another group that's particularly vulnerable are the LGBTQIA plus group, because many of our societies still have laws that make them illegal, make their practices illegal. We still have societies that frown upon that group. So literally, by virtue of their lifestyle, they're more vulnerable. So we have groups that face with the same climate-related hazard, faced with an economic challenge, their options are reduced and they're less able to respond. And that's what I look at. I look at those social vulnerabilities. I also look at issues such as the built environment, because some things in within the built environment might also make people more vulnerable in terms of where they're living. Their, their choices of location may be limited, and therefore they may be living on slopes that are prone to slippage. They may be living in unregulated housing, which is also known previously as, you know, squatter communities with limited 
utilities and other resources. So their built environment can also be a factor that will contribute to their problems. Barbados is a very small island. It's only 166 square miles. So the urban-rural split for us is not a, as big an issue. But in larger Caribbean locations, people who are in very rural locations sometimes also are disadvantaged by basically not having easy transportation access, by not having basic access to some provisions such as water and electricity in the way that you would in an urban or suburban experience. So social vulnerability are the inherent characteristics of, you know, gender, race, ethnicity, social status, but also external factors that make you vulnerable. Can you access medical care easily? How far are you from medical facility? And if you get to that medical facility, can you afford to pay for it? Do you have a free system? And even if the system is free, how long do you have to wait for it? Are you on social security? Is it enough to meet your basic needs? Those are some of the social vulnerability issues that I look at. And then when you interplay those social vulnerabilities in a context of climate and the elements of climate, that makes life more difficult in a small island developing state like Barbados, you understand why those groups are particularly vulnerable. Wow, you bring up key points around environmental justice as the same populations that you mentioned with these socioeconomic stressors also face the most risk of the climate hazards. Thank you so much, Janice, for joining us today. It was my pleasure. I hope that my few views are understood and uh, I have added a little bit of wisdom out there that might be helpful to a few. With that, I would like to thank our guests, Dr. Janice Cumberbatch and our interviewer Shifali Matthews for joining us on this episode of Atmospheric Tales. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe and share.